I received lots of email this week about Hanukkah. And they're grouped into a few different categories. The first is, do we have to celebrate Hanukkah? The answer is, no, you don't have to. Is there a commandment that says you have to? No, there isn't. Well, then why would we want to celebrate Hanukkah? Well, the first thing is, it's hard to understand end times prophecy if you don't understand Hanukkah. And we're going to find out why in a few minutes. But first, open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 10. Messiah only went to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. If you, have you noticed that? And in John, he didn't like Jerusalem. He liked the common people up in the Galilee. The people who were humble enough to listen, to learn. The folks down in Jerusalem tended to be a little bit self-righteous, and he wasn't really impressed with them. So if you turn to the book of John, chapter 10, starting in verse 22. John 10, 22. Many people tell me, Wayne, Hanukkah's not even mentioned in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. John 10, 22 says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. And where was Messiah when it's time for Hanukkah? It says in verse 23, And Yeshua walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Where was Solomon's porch? Please don't say on the temple, but where on the temple? It's on the south end of the temple. Everybody who comes as a pilgrim comes up the southern steps. And when you first come onto the Temple Mount, that's Solomon's porch. And that's where a lot of teaching went on. Because anybody and everybody could come to that place. Men, women, Jew, Gentile, anybody could come there and learn and listen. Verse 24. Then the Jews, it should be Judeans, surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? Meaning in suspense. We want to know. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And you can just see Messiah banging his head on the table, can't you? Like he's never said before. So it says, Yeshua answered them, I told you. Meaning, I've already told you. And you do not believe. He's kind of like saying, if I tell you again and again and again, how many times will it take till you finally believe me? He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Remember back in Isaiah, there was a list of miracles that Messiah would perform. He'd do things like, oh, I don't know, make the blind see, make the dumb speak, make the lame to walk. How many of those miracles has he performed? All of them. So he says, they bear witness to me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Meaning, as I said before. What does he mean you're not of my sheep? What do the sheep do? They hear the master's voice, the voice of the shepherd, and they follow the shepherd. So why do these people not believe? Because they don't want to. Because if they believe, then they have to repent. They have to turn away from their sins, and they enjoy their sins too much. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you follow the shepherd, 
That means you walk the same way as the shepherd. In which way is Messiah leading? In the ways of God, right? And the shepherd can only lead the sheep in one direction. But the sheep want to each go their own way. I'll decide what I want to do. And that's what I'll do. He says, and I give them eternal life. Too many people read this and say, and I give everyone eternal life. But that's not what it says, does it? Who's he giving eternal life to? His sheep. Those who believe in him and follow him and walk as he walks. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Echad. People say, Wayne, that just means they think alike. But look what happens. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Are they going to stone him because he thinks like God? No, they're going to stone him because they understand when he says, I and my father are one, it means he is God from all eternity. They think it's blasphemy for him to claim to be God, but it's not. Why? Because he is. There you go. And from there, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So they ask him in verse 24, if you're the Messiah. They ask him, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. He answers in 30, I'm God. But he answers before that, the miracles that I do, they testify that I am who I say I am, the Messiah. Because in Isaiah, the miracles that are to be performed are by Messiah. But then he's saying that, he's saying. But then he goes beyond it. I am the Messiah, I am God. Right. I mean, that's why they want stone. Right. Saying I'm the Messiah, that didn't cause them to pick up stones. But to say I'm God, now they want to pick up stones. Because that's a step beyond what they're expecting and looking for. Yeah, that's right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And they would also be thinking, well, if he's God, then I have to give up my other gods. Does that follow through? Yes. I think they're just shocked. I think they were shocked too, but 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, what does that tell us? Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Messiah. So if Messiah celebrated Hanukkah, then we can celebrate Hanukkah, and we should. Are we commanded to? No. It's not one of the Shalosh Regalim. It's not one of the Shalosh Regalim. Is this the only place where the scripture says we should follow as Messiah walked? Go to 1 John 2, 6. 1 John 2, 6. Remember in John chapter 15, Messiah said, Abide in me, or beware of the fire. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, He who says he abides in him, that's in Messiah, ought also himself to walk just as he walked. So if Messiah kept the festival, we should keep the festival. And to me, that's reason enough. But that's not the only reason, too. The other is to understand in times prophecy. So go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. 
Have any of you heard that it's written in Ecclesiastes, what's happened before will happen again? That's because it's true. What's happened before will happen again. Antiochus Epiphanes from the story of Hanukkah is the picture in the scripture of the false messiah, Antichrist, or beast of Revelation chapter 13. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. See, I got a question out there. It says, Terry asked, when we went to Israel in 2003 and were on the southern steps, were we near Solomon's porch? The answer is yes. If we had gone through those double gates that are bricked up, we would have come out in Solomon's porch. That's exactly right, Terry. Okay, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. If you don't know Hanukkah, then you don't know what the abomination of desolation is. I've listened to many theologians over the past week talk about these very verses. And they have all kinds of ideas about what the abomination of desolation is. They don't know. Why don't they know? Because they don't know the story of Hanukkah. The phrase, the abomination of desolation, is right out of the book of Maccabees. It's something that Antiochus Epiphanes did about 2,700 years ago. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The most common thing that I heard the theologians say is that when the Antichrist goes into the temple and sits on the throne, that's the abomination of desolation. But it's not. So what is it you're saying? Hey, you got to hang on. I can't get ahead of the story. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is the prophecy about the events of Hanukkah. Written hundreds of years before it happened. Daniel chapter 8. Are Matthew and Daniel the only books of the Bible that refer back to Hanukkah? The answer is no. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 8 and start in verse 1. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, if you remember, it describes the false Messiah. Where it says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints in the Most High, and shall intend to, meaning try to, change the times, that's the feasts and the festivals, and the law. So the false Messiah will do his very best to get people to stop keeping the commandments of God. The picture of that is in Daniel chapter 8 with Antiochus Epiphanes. So verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, who was Belshazzar? Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He's the last king who will reign in Babylon before it gets overthrown by Medo-Persia. Remember how it got overthrown? Remember, mine, mine, tekel, you farsen? 
Your kingdom's been weighed in the balance and it's been found wanting, meaning what? You fall way short. And it's been numbered and it comes to an end tonight. And that very night the kingdom fell. That's the same Belshazzar. So in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel. Why does he say to me twice? Can't believe God would give me such a prophetic vision. After the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan the citadel. Citadel means the capital. Shushan is not the capital of Babylon, where Daniel is. Shushan is the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire that will overthrow Babylon. So in the vision, Babylon has already fallen. And Medo-Persia has taken control. And what book of the Bible is all about what happens in Shushan the Citadel? That's the book of Esther, right? About Purim. Purim and Hanukkah are linked at the shoulders. It says what's in the pro is in the province of Elam. Elam is in modern day what? Iran. Mm-hmm. It's where the Bashir nuclear reactor is that one of these days will not be there any longer. Which I saw in a vision that I was by the river Ulai in the vision. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. That ram represents Medo-Persia. Why two horns? Because Media is one kingdom and Persia is the other. They joined forces together to overthrow Babylon. And the two horns were high, that is very powerful, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, one was stronger than the other, but very shortly they changed roles, and the one that had been subservient became dominant. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Why doesn't it push eastward? Because that's where they are. They're not conquering themselves, they're conquering everybody else. Says so that no animal could withstand, and those animals represent the kingdoms. No, is there any that could deliver from his hand? But he did according to his will and became great, meaning very large, very powerful. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. What's west of the Medo Persian Empire? Greece. Greece. Yeah. Across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That just indicates the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered. And a goat had a notable horn between his eyes. That's Alexander the Great, or I call him Alexander the Mediocre. You call him what you want. <laughs> then he came to the ram, that's Medo-Persia, that had two horns, which I seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns as he conquers Media and Persia. Is it as Alexander thought because he was such a magnificent general? Or was it because God had decreed it? Because God had decreed it all the way back in Daniel chapter 2. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. There was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. When he became strong, the large horn was broken. 
How old was Alexander the Great when he died? He was about 30 to 32 years old, somewhere in there. He died suddenly, mysteriously, with no male heir. But as he was dying, he divided his kingdom amongst his four generals. That's right. One took the north, one the south, one the east, one the west. The east and the west become fairly irrelevant to the story. It's the king of the north and the king of the south that become really important. It says, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. That's the four kings that took the four kingdoms. The one that took the kingdom of Syria was called the Seleucid Empire. The one who took the southern kingdom of Greece was called the Ptolemaic Empire. Who is the most famous ruler of the Ptolemaic Empire that you know? She liked to play with snakes. Cleopatra. So we think of Cleopatra as being an Egyptian queen. No, she was queen of Egypt, but she's Grecian. So is the Seleucid Empire. All four empires were Grecian generals that became kings of a fourth of the empire. Verse 9, and out of one of them, that's the Seleucid Empire, came a little horn, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus who is God incarnate. His best friends behind his back called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the madman. He was loony as they come, but he was very powerful. Says which grew exceedingly great toward the south, that is, he keeps attacking Greece. No, Egypt. The Egyptian rulers were Grecians, that's why I said Greece, but it's the ones in Egypt, the Ptolemaic Empire. Toward the east, that's where Israel is. Toward the glorious land, that is Israel itself. Picture in your mind, close your eyes, think of Syria. And then think of Egypt and realize there is one road that runs between the two. You can open your eyes. It's the Via Maris. It runs right in front of the mount called Megiddo, from which we get the word Armageddon. So when Syria would go down to attack Egypt, they would march right through the middle of Israel, go down and get whooped up on. As they're marching back, do you want to go home a loser? No, so you whoop up on little Israel. Because as they, as they stood militarily back in those days, they were not strong. Hmm. So verse 10, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. That's referring to some of the Jewish people. He wanted to turn them away from the worship of the true and living God and turn them to Greek language and culture, to the Greek gods. And many were very happy to do so. They didn't want to worship God anyway. I mean, the Greeks, they had all kinds of fun things, like the gymnasiums were all naked places full of homosexuality. And they had all kinds of other sexual immorality, and the people said, hey, this is cool, let's go do that. But not all. Verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Just think of 2 Thessalonians 2, where the false Messiah mocks God. 
And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. He stopped the people from sacrificing to God. What does the false Messiah do halfway through the 70th week? He's going to stop the sacrifices and say, you can only worship me. These are things Antiochus Epiphanes did 2,700 years ago, give or take. The daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Antiochus sacrificed a sow pig on the altar of God. And they're not just any pigs. I hope you realize that. Think about the story that happened over at the land of the Gadarenes. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee. When Messiah cast the demons out of Legion. Where do they want to be cast? Into the pigs. Those were special black pigs used in the sacrifices of the Saturnalia. So that's the kind of pig that Antiochus sacrifices on God's altar in God's temple. He forbid the people from practicing their religion. He forbid the people from keeping the commandments of God. If a woman um, circumcised her son according to the law... They would kill the child and hang it around her neck on a cord until the flesh rotted off the body and then kill her. This is the kind of hatred that he had for the commandments of God. Did we see that in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25? He's doing that which the false Messiah is prophesied to do in the future. Meaning what he did 2700 years ago the false Messiah will do shortly. It is the picture. And he set up in the temple of God an idolatrous image. That's the abomination of desolation. He set up an idolatrous image to be worshipped. The image was of Zeus Kyrios, which is the king of the gods of the Grecians. But he went farther than that. He put as the face of Zeus his own face. His own face. Just think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he claims to be higher than all the gods. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He set up that idolatrous image in the temple of God and said you will worship my image, not the God that you have been worshiping. Verse 12. Because of transgression, because of the children of Israel's sins, An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. So God allows him to conquer the children of Israel because they're steeped in sin at this point. So then he casts truth down to the ground. What truth are we talking about? The Torah. Psalm 119 verse 142. says he did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay, let's go over to Daniel chapter 11, where it tells us more about the events that lead up to the celebration of Hanukkah. Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Oops, I have a question out here. Number one, is it in scripture how the abomination of desolation defiles the temple? That's in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. 
when it says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, the holy place is the temple. The temple was made up of two parts, HaKodesh, the holy place, and Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holy of holies. So yes, Matthew 24, 15 tells us the abomination of desolation will be in the temple. Where in Revelation do we read about the abomination of desolation being set up? Keep a finger in Daniel. Let's go to Revelation 13. We would have had to go there anyway. Eventually. Revelation 13. There are two beasts. One is the false messiah or antichrist. The other is the false prophet. Who causes the world to worship the first beast. Of that second beast, that's in Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, comes up out of Israel. And he had two horns like a lamb. Lamb means he's pretending to be a Christian leader. And he spoke like a dragon. That is, he's really trying to lead people to Satan, who is the dragon of Revelation 12. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in to worship the beast whose deadly wound was healed. Got to stop you for a minute. All the movies show the Antichrist getting shot in the head or stabbed in the head or beaten in the head and he dies and Satan raises him back to life. The scripture says he's wounded in one of his seven heads. He doesn't actually have seven heads, so it's talking about one of the nations, not himself. But that's just something to keep in mind. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. People say, how can he do that? Read Deuteronomy 13. That tells how he can. God allows the miracle to see if people will allow themselves to be misled or will they cling to God entirely. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do. God permits him to do them. In the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, that's the abomination of desolation. Who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak. How can an image speak? With all the AI stuff now, absolutely. It could either be a television screen or it could be a 3D image. We all remember the stories that were circulating a year or more ago about the great holographic projections they can do and speak and move. Yeah. And causes many would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their on their foreheads. Everybody knows what that mark is, right? 666. No, it's not. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The 666 is the number of his name, and it's not three sixes. Let's read. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. But if you look at the Greek underlying, it says 666, which is not three sixes. 
In Hebrew, three sixes would be va, va, va. But the number 600 is different from a six. So it's 660 and six. So if we knew the right combination of Hebrew letters, we'd know what the name of the beast is, but we don't need to know that right now. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. No, let's go to Daniel chapter 11. We did chapter 8. Oh, we have a question out there. Let's see what it is. What do the modern Jewish people think about Daniel? Do they think he's a prophet? They do not think he's a prophet. And he asked, why not? They say, they say prophets spoke to the people and Daniel only wrote his prophecies. Therefore, he's not a prophet. I see y'all looking at me like, well, that's silly. <laughs> yes, it is. Daniel, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Yeah, he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. They're just trying for it not to be a prophet because Daniel tells us exactly when Messiah would be crucified and that was back at the start of the first century. There were many prophecies that were reinterpreted after Messiah's day and that was one of them. After he fulfilled them. After he fulfilled them, yeah. Daniel chapter 11 verse 1 says, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, now, do you notice we're no longer in Babylon? We're now in Medo-Persia. I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. And the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise. Who's that mighty king? Alexander the Great who shall rule with great dominion, do according to his will. When he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up, divided toward the four winds of heaven. That's his four kings, one to the north, one to the south, one to the east, one to the west. But not among his posterity, that is not his children. He didn't have any male children at the time he died. Oddly enough, he had a male child born after he died, but that was too late. He couldn't inherit the kingdom. It was already gone to the four generals. Nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Then go down to verse 28. Daniel eleven twenty-eight. While returning to his land with great riches, that is, after his engagement with Egypt. Do you know what happened in Egypt? He was ready for a, what's that? He was ready for a great victory when here coming up on the shores of Egypt is the Roman fleet. Cleopatra, uh, she adored the Romans, especially Mark Antony, right? So if you're reading these, just think, we know some of these people. But here's the fleet, and the commander of the Roman fleet comes up to Antiochus Epiphanes and with his sword draws a circle around him. And Antiochus is kind of scratching his head going, what you doing? And the commander of the Grecian or the Roman fleet says, you have a choice to make. You can engage with Egypt, in which case you're fighting Rome too. Or you can go home, but decide before you step out of this circle. And he tucked tail and headed back for Syria. You can't go home and tell the people I was humiliated down there. So he stops to whoop up on little Israel. Verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. 
That is the covenant between Israel and God. He hates it. He absolutely hates it. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus, that's Rome, shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, meaning those who excuse me, forsake the covenant between Israel and God. He would reward. They would be his friends. He would give them power and position and money. How does bribery work today? Still works pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. So the more that would forsake God, the more would be his friends. Verse 31, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, that is the temple. Then he shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. See that phrase, the abomination of desolation. That is the exact words Messiah uses in Matthew 24, 15. And they're also in the book of the Maccabees. Then those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong. That's the Maccabees. And carry out great exploits. They're going to overthrow the, the Syrian army. One of the most powerful armies in the world. They're going to be overthrown by a bunch of priests with sticks and stones and such things. Verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. That is, they will teach the people in the ways of God. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. What does Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 say about the false Messiah that he's going to do what to the saints? Let's turn back to Daniel 7.25. I didn't read the second half of the verse earlier because it's right here in Daniel 11. It says, Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time, which is three and a half years. The three and a half years of the great tribulation period. As in days past, Antiochus Epiphanes was able to defeat the saints for a long period of time, for a good three years. Verse 34. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. Where does that help come from? From God. But many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those who understand it shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white. Until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. In other words, many people back in the days of the Maccabees would have said, this is the end of days, we're here. This is that great battle we've been looking for. And God says, oh no, it's not. That's still a long time into the future. Question? Go ahead. So is that where the mid-tribulation rapture idea comes from? No, the mid-tribulation rapture idea comes from Revelation chapter 12. Let's but go to Revelation 12. But in Daniel it says, the saints will be given into his hands three and a half years. Yep, but that's not where it comes that's from. That's not the seed of all that. Nope, the seed is Revelation 12 where it says verse 5 Revelation 12 takes place at the midpoint. 
says she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. They say, well, that must be when all God's children get caught up. So that's where they get the idea of the mid-trip. Yeah. All righty. Let's go next to the book of the Maccabees. So put your Bible aside. I'm going to read from the first book of the Maccabees as it was in the original 1611 King James Bible. It shouldn't have been part of the Bible, but it was. It's just history, but it's really important history. So let me read it. And as I do, I want you to think about what we just read in Daniel, okay? Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. It says, And it happened after that Alexander, son of Philip, that's Alexander who? The great or the mediocre, depending on your point of view. The Macedonian, that means Grecian, who came out of the land of Katim, had smitten Darius, king of the Persians and Medes, that he reigned in his stead, the first over Greece. So Philip the Macedonian was the one who conquered Medo-Persia, but Alexander the Great was the one who expanded out the empire. And made many wars and won many strongholds and slew the kings of the earth and went through to the ends of the earth, and took spoils of many nations, insomuch that the earth was quiet before him, meaning there was no nation left to fight him. Whereupon he was exalted, and his heart was lifted up. Have you read in history how he sat down and cried because there were no more worlds to conquer? That's what it's saying here. Verse 4, And he gathered a mighty strong host, and ruled over countries and nations and kings, who became tributaries unto him. What's a tributary? They give him gold and silver every year so that he won't hurt them anymore. After these things, he fell sick and perceived that he should die. He knows he's going to die. Wherefore, he called his servants, such as were honorable, and been brought up with him from his youth. That's the four generals he's talking about. They were his childhood friends. Imparted his kingdom among them while he was yet alive. So Alexander reigned 12 years and then died. And his servants bear rule everyone in his place, the king of the north, south, east, and west. And his servants bear rule everyone in his place. And after his death, they all put crowns upon themselves. So did their sons after them many years, and evils were multiplied in the earth. What does every king who rules over a quarter of the earth want? More. More, of course. And that's what happens. Verse 10. And there came out of them a wicked root of Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, son of Antiochus the king, who had been a hostage at Rome, and he reigned in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days went there out of Israel wicked men, who persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathen that are round about us. So those are Jews who say, we don't want to worship God. Let's make covenants with the surrounding nations so we can worship their gods. It says, for since we departed from them, we've had much sorrow. Does that sound like the folks that came out of Egypt and said, why didn't he just leave us in Egypt to die? Yeah, they're saying, hey, it was so much better when we were in captivity. Verse 12, so this device pleased them well. Then certain of the people were so forward therein that they went to the king 
who gave them license to do after the ordinances of the heathen. Whereupon they built a place of exercise at Jerusalem according to the customs of the heathen, which meant naked and full of homosexuality. That's the way it was in the Grecian Empire. And made themselves uncircumcised and forsook the holy covenant. What is circumcision? It's a sign of the covenant. They don't want to be part of God's covenant anymore. And they joined themselves to the heathen and were sold to do mischief. That is to walk in sin. Now when a kingdom was established before Antiochus, he thought to reign over Egypt. Then he might have the dominion of two realms. Wherefore he entered into Egypt with a great multitude with chariots and elephants and horsemen and a great navy. And made war against Ptolemy, king of Egypt. But Ptolemy was afraid of him and fled. And many were wounded to death. So he starts out conquering in Egypt. Things are going well. Verse 19 says, Thus they got the strong cities in the land of Egypt and took the spoils thereof. Remember in Daniel it said he originally came out with great riches. Verse 20, And after that Antiochus had smitten Egypt, he returned again in the hundred forty and third year and went up against Israel and Jerusalem with a great multitude. Yeah, he's going to whip up our little Israel. Verse 21, And entered proudly into the sanctuary, that's the temple, and took away the golden altar, that's the altar of incense, and the candlestick of light, that's the menorah, and all the vessels thereof. What are the vessels made of? They're made up of valuable materials, right? Gold, silver, brass. Verse 22, and the table of the showbread, that's covered with gold, right? And the pouring vessels, and the vials, and the censers of gold, and the veil, and the crown, and the golden ornaments that were before the temple, all of which he pulled off. He took also the silver and the gold and the precious vessels. He also took the hidden treasures which he found. When he had taken all away, he went into his own land, having made a great massacre, and spoken very proudly. He's boasting about how he defeated the God of the Jews. And he slew the priests that wanted to stay loyal to God. Verse 25, Therefore there was a great mourning in Israel in every place where they were. So that the princes and elders mourned. The virgins and young men were made feeble. And the beauty of women was changed. This was something horrible that he did. He proclaimed that. Anytime a Jewish bridegroom and bride get married, the bride has to spend her wedding night with a Syrian soldier. So that any children born thereafter, you don't know, are they from the Jewish husband or from the Syrian soldier? And they thought that way he could break the people's loyalty and, a, and attraction to the land. That's why he says in verse 27, every bridegroom took up lamentation. And she that sat in the marriage chamber was in heaviness, sorrow of heart because of what had to happen. Land also was moved for the inhabitants thereof, and all the house of Jacob was covered with confusion. And after two years fully expired, the king sent his chief collector of tribute unto the cities of Judah, who came into Jerusalem with a great multitude, and spake peaceable words unto them, but all was deceit. 
Meaning they said, if you'll do all this, these things for us, then you'll be our friends, we'll love you, we'll be like one. And they were lying to them. Huh. For when he had given him credence, he fell upon the city and smote it very sore and destroyed much of the people of Israel. Verse 31, And when he had taken the spoils of the city, he set it on fire and pulled down the houses and walls thereof on every side. But the women and children took they captive and possessed the cattle. They builded, then builded they the city of David with a great and strong wall and with mighty towers and made it a stronghold for them. And they put therein a sinful nation, wicked men, and fortified themselves therein. They started also with armor and vittles. What's vittles? Food. Food. Yeah. Like I said, this is old English. And when they had gathered together the spoils of Jerusalem, they laid them up there, so they became a source near. For it was a place to lie in wait against the sanctuary and an evil adversary to Israel. Thus they shed innocent blood in every side of the sanctuary and defiled it, insomuch that the inhabitants of Jerusalem fled because of them. Whereupon the city was made a habitation of strangers and became strange to those who were born in her and her own children left her. What did Messiah say to do when you see the abomination of desolation stand in a holy place? Flee to Petra. What's happened before will happen again. Her sanctuary was laid waste like a wilderness. Her feasts were turned into mourning. Her Sabbaths into reproach. Her honor into contempt. What did Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 say? He not only wants to destroy the Torah, but also all the appointed times, the feasts and the festivals, the Shabbats, the Passovers, etc. As had been her glory, so was her dishonor increased, and her excellency was turned into mourning. Why does God allow this to happen? What does he want the people to do? Repent. Remember, the people wanted to enter into treaties with the foreign nations. They wanted to be like the foreign nations, and God's given them a taste of it, and they don't like it. Verse 41, Moreover, Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people, that is, the Grecian language, the Grecian religion, the Grecian culture. Verse 42, And everyone should leave his laws, that is, the laws of your nation, and follow the laws of Greece. So all the heathen agreed according to the commandment of the king, yea, many also the Israelites consented to his religion and sacrificed unto idols and profaned the Sabbath. For the king had sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that, should, that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice. That's Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, right? False Messiah will do that in the midst of the tribulation period. And that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days. Look at that. You cannot keep the Sabbath. You cannot keep Passover. You cannot keep the commandments of God. Does this sound like 4th century Roman Catholicism? It's the same spirit just manifested in a different time. Verse 46, and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, that is to sacrifice pigs on God's holy altar, and set up altars and groves and chapel of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts. 
that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation. What does Leviticus 11 say happens to us if we eat unclean foods? We become abominable in the sight of God. Verse 49, to the end, here's his purpose. They might forget the law and change all the ordinances. And what, whosoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he said he should die. In the selfsame manner wrote he to his whole kingdom, and appointed overseers over all the people, commanding the cities of Judah to sacrifice city by city. What do you think they're supposed to sacrifice? A pig. Then many of the people were gathered unto them, to it, everyone that forsook the law. Everyone who was willing to turn away from God's commandments were gathered unto the Syrians. And so they committed evils in the land. And drove the Israelites, that is, those who wanted to continue to keep God's commandments and to worship him, into secret places. Even wheresoever they could flee for sukkur. What's sukkur? Food. Think in the middle of the tribulation period. You can't buy or sell without the market of beast. So they had to do whatever they could do to flee to secret places to find something to eat. Verse 54 says, now on the 15th day of the month of, it says here, Kazlu, but it's Kislev. That's 10 days before Hanukkah in today's calendar. In the 140 and 50th year, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar and built idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side. So they set up that idolatrous image upon the altar in the temple of God. So that everyone would know when they came and did their sacrifice, they were doing it unto Antiochus Epiphanes and not unto God. Verse 55, and burn incense at the doors of their houses and in the streets. Who are they burning incense to? The pagan gods. And when they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found. What's it mean that? Rent in pieces. Ripped them up. Tore apart every book of the law they could find. And they burnt them with fire. Wasn't that repeated by the Catholics? It was, yep. That's why we, yeah. we don't have Hebrew texts. That's why we have very few Hebrew texts. There were some that were rescued from the fire, like the Dutelay Matthew. A bishop found it burning in the fire and rescued it because he recognized it was Matthew. Verse 57, whoever was found with any book of the Testament... Or if any committed to the law, the king's commandment was that they should be put him to death. Thus did they by their authority unto the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the city. So every month they go through and try and find somebody keeping the Sabbath or keeping a commandment of God. Does that sound like the Inquisition that went on for a thousand years? What happened if you kept the Sabbath? They put you to death in the city square. Now the 5 and 20th day of the month, that's Kislev 25, that's the day we call Hanukkah, or the start of Hanukkah, the first day. They did sacrifice upon the idol altar, which was upon the altar of God. At which time, according to the commandment, they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised. And they hang the infants about their necks. That's the dead infants I told you about. And rifled their houses. Is that a term in Zechariah chapter 14? It is. 
and slew them that had circumcised them. Howbeit many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing. All you had to do to show the Syrians that you were, re, you were turning away from God, you were refusing God, was to eat a little bit of that pork. That's all you had to do. And then he would say, okay, you have rejected God. So many people ask me, Wayne, why do you have this great interest in people quit eating pork? Well, a lot of it comes from right here. Howbeit, many in Israel were fully resolving and confirming themselves not to eat any unclean thing. Wherefore, they chose rather to die, that they might not be defiled with meats, that they might not profane the holy covenant. So then they died. And there was very great wrath upon Israel. Chapter 2. In those days arose Mattathias, the son of John, the son of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Joarib from Jerusalem and dwelt in Modain. What, how do you know Mattathias to be? He's the first of the Maccabees, right? Yeah. He had five sons. Jonathan called Cadus, Simeon called Thassi, Judas who was called Maccabeus, which means the hammer, Eliezer called Avaron, and Jonathan, whose name was Ophis. And when he saw the blasphemies that were committed in Judah and Jerusalem, he said, Woe is me! Wherefore I was born to see this misery of my people and of the holy city and to dwell there, when it was delivered into the hand of the enemy and the sanctuary into the hand of strangers. Her temple has become as a man without glory. Her glorious vessels are carried away into captivity. Her infants are slain in the streets. Her young men with the sword of the enemy. What nation hath not had a part in her kingdom and gotten of her spoils? Just to make sure we remember. This is Israel after they come back from the Babylonian captivity. Who has decided they don't want to worship God anymore but want to be like the nations of the world. But here's Mattathias, a priest, who says, that's not what we're supposed to be. And that this terrible judgment has come upon us because the people didn't want to follow God anymore. So he sees the heart of the problem is the sin of the people. Verse 12, and behold, our sanctuary, even our beauty and our glory is laid waste, and the Gentiles have profaned it. To what end, therefore, shall we live any longer? He means it's better to die than to partake of the pagan celebrations and ceremonies and worships and idols. Then Mattathias and his sons rent their clothes. Doesn't mean they paid money to borrow them. It means they tore them, tore them. That's a sign of mourning, grief. And put on sackcloth and mourned very sore. So they are repenting before God for the sins of the people that caused this great catastrophe. In the meanwhile, the king's officers, such as compel the people to revolt, came into the city of Modain to make them sacrifice. It's their time. And when many of Israel came unto them, Mattathias also and his sons came together. Then answered the king's officers and said to Mattathias on this wise, Thou art a ruler, and an honorable and great man in this city, and strengthened with sons and brethren. 
Now therefore come thou first and fulfill the king's commandment. They pick out Mattathias and say, you're a great man in the city. You be the first one to take part in this pagan celebration and sacrifice. I wonder if Satan had anything to do with who, who they picked. I'm sure. Verse 18, Now therefore come thou first and fulfill the king's commandment like as all the heathen have done. Yea, and the men of Judah also and such as remain at Jerusalem. So shalt thou and thy house be in the number of the king's friends. And thou and thy children shall be rewarded with silver and gold and many rewards. Then Mattathias answered and spake with a loud voice. Not a whisper. Why a loud voice? He wants everybody to hear. Though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him and fall away every one from the religion of their fathers and give consent to his commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brethren walk in the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we for should forsake the law and the ordinances. We will not hearken to the king's words to go from our religion either on the right hand or the left. Does that sound like Deuteronomy? Don't depart to the right hand or to the left. Now when he had left speaking these words, there came one of the Jews in the sight of all to sacrifice on the altar which was at Moda'in, according to the king's commandment. So one of the other priests says, Hey, Mattathias, you just step aside. I'll do it. I'll do it on behalf of this city. Uh, nope, that's not going to work. Verse 24, which thing which when Mattathias saw, he was inflamed with zeal and his reins trembled. Neither could he forbear to show his anger according to judgment, wherefore he ran and slew him upon the altar. What does Deuteronomy 13 say should happen to any false prophet who wants to lead the people into paganism? This very thing, this very thing right here. Verse 25, also the king's commissioner who compelled men to sacrifice, he killed at that time, and he, the altar he pulled down. That is, he throws it down so that no one can participate in it, the sacrifice. Thus dealt he zealously for the law of God like as Phineas did unto Zimbri, the son of Salome. Remember from the book of Numbers? Yeah, he stuck it to him. Oh, no pun intended, I'm sure. Yeah. Verse 27. And Mattathias cried throughout the city with a loud voice saying, Whoever is zealous of the law and maintaining the covenant, let him follow me. Does God sit back and go, Oh, you're a bad boy trying to lead people to keep my commandments? No, just the opposite. Verse 28, so he and his sons fled into the mountains and he left all that ever they had in the city, left all their possessions behind. And they flee into the mountains. Then after that, sought after justice and judgment, went down into the wilderness to dwell there, both they and their children, their wives and their cattle, because afflictions increased sore upon them. Now when it was told the king's servants and the host that was at Jerusalem in the city of David that certain men who had broken a king's commandment, were gone down into the secret places in the wilderness. They pursued after them a great number. Does that sound like Revelation 12? They pursue the woman into the wilderness. 
And having overtaken them, they camped against them and made war against them on the Sabbath day. Why did they choose the Sabbath day to attack? Let's read. And they said unto them, Let that which ye have done here, hitherto suffice. Come forth and do according to the commandment of the king, and ye shall live. So if you will violate Shabbat and take part in pagan rituals and eat of the pagan sacrifices of the pigs, then we'll forget all that happened before. But they said, We will not come forth, neither will we do the king's commandment to profane the Sabbath day. So then they, the Syrians, gave them, the Jews, the battle with all speed. Howbeit they, the Jews, answered them not, meaning they wouldn't fight back. Why? Because it was the Sabbath. Where do you think the Muslims get the idea to keep attacking the Jews on the Sabbath day? Right here. It says, They answered them not, neither cast they a stone at them, nor stopped the places where they lay hid. But said, Let us die all in our innocency. Heaven and earth will testify for us that ye put us to death wrongfully. Meaning, come judgment day, oh, you're going to get it. So they rose up against them in battle on the Sabbath and slew them with their wives and children and their cattle to the number of a thousand people. Now, when Mattathias and his friends understood hereof, that is, they hear what happened and know what happened, they mourned for them right sore. And one of them said to another, If we all do as our brethren have done and fight not for our lives and laws against the heathen, they will now quickly root us out of the earth. Notice, it's not just we have to stand up for our lives. We have to stand up and defend the laws of God. Or they will eliminate everyone who is willing to worship God and follow his decrees. At that time, therefore, they decreed, saying, Whoever shall come to make battle with us on the Sabbath day, we will fight against him. Neither will we die all as our brethren that were murdered in the secret places. And came there unto him a company of Assyrians who were mighty men of Israel, even all such as were voluntarily devoted unto the law. Which word stood out there? Voluntarily. voluntarily. They choose to walk with God. Which is what the Bible said about Enoch and about Noah, etc. Also they that fled for persecution joined themselves unto them and were a stay unto them. So they joined their forces and smote sinful men in their anger and wicked men in their wrath. But the rest fled to the heathen for succor. In other words, those that were willing to stand up for God stood up for God and the rest went and joined the heathens. Then Mattathias and his friends went round about and pulled down the altars, the pagan altars. And whatever children soever they found within the coast of Israel uncircumcised, those they circumcised valiantly. They pursued also after the proud men, and the work prospered in their hand. Why did it prosper? Who was behind them? God was behind them. So they recovered the law out of the hand of the Gentiles, and out of the hand of kings. Neither suffered they the sinner to triumph. Now when the time drew near that Mattathias should die, he said unto his sons, Now hath pride and rebuke gotten strength, in the time of destruction and the wrath of indignation. Now therefore, my sons, be zealous for the law, and give your lives for the covenant of your fathers. What's he mean? We would rather die 
then break the commandments of God. Because to break the commandments of God is to forsake God. Call to remember what acts our fathers did in their time. So shall ye receive great honor and an everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation? And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. What's that mean? Abraham was saved by faith. Joseph, in the time of his distress, kept the commandment that was made and was made Lord of Egypt. What did Potiphar's wife want? Joseph to commit adultery. And Joseph said, no, I won't violate God that way. And he was made vizier of Egypt. Verse 54, Phineas, our father, in being zealous and fervent, obtained the covenant of an everlasting priesthood. So Mattathias and his sons are descendants of Phineas. Verse 55 says, Joshua, for fulfilling the word, was made a judge in Israel. Caleb, for hearing witness before the congregation, received the heritage of the land. He, although he wasn't born Jewish, was given the place of Hebron to be his own, remember? Verse 57, David, for being merciful, possessed the throne of an everlasting kingdom. Elias, it's actually Elijah, for being zealous and fervent for the law, was taken up into heaven. Ananias, Azarias, and Mishael, we know him better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by believing, were saved out of the flame. Daniel, for his innocency, was delivered from the mouth of lions. And thus consider ye throughout all ages that none that put their trust in him shall be overcome. Wayne? Yes, Edmund? Uh, I was thinking about how in Hebrews, um, there's definitely a reference to in the uh, catalogue of people of faith, definitely a reference to Maccabees in there. And yep. this, this, this group of different characters echoes Hebrews is the same pattern in that chapter 11. Right. A whole series of people. I think, I think Hebrews and Maccabees are, 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 he's consciously thinking of Maccabees when he's writing that list in Hebrews. Yep. Edmund cannot see my notes because they're laying on the table, but where do we go after this? We go to Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> so Edmund is exactly correct. Sorry um, about that. That's okay. Great minds think alike. And so do we. Okay. Verse 61. Thus consider ye throughout all ages that none that put their trust in him shall be overcome. Is that a true statement? True. Absolutely true. Put your faith in the Lord and you shall not be moved. Verse 62 says, Fear not then the words of a sinful man, for his glory shall be dung and worms. Ooh, what's the future of a sinful man? Death. Today he shall be lifted up and tomorrow he shall not be found because he's returned into his dust and his thought has come to nothing. Wherefore ye, my sons, be valiant and show yourselves men in the behalf of the law for by it shall ye obtain glory. By what? By faith. And behold, I know that your brother Simon is a man of counsel. Give ear unto him always. He shall be a father to you. But, verse 66, as for Judas Maccabeus, he hath been mighty and strong, even from his youth up. Let him be your captain and fight the battle of the people. 
There was a comment out here. Kathleen says the King James Version uses Jesus instead of Joshua. That's true, but it's Joshua that they're talking about. You know, the King James people, they tended to change names and things. Yeah. But we know what they mean. Verse 66, and it's for Judas Maccabeus, that is Judah the Maccabee, Judah the Hammer. He hath been mighty and strong, even from his youth up. Let him be your captain and fight the battle of the people. Take also unto you all those that observe the law and avenge ye the wrong of your people. That is all who will follow the law by faith. Take into your number. Verse 68 says, Recompense fully the heathen and take heed to the commandments of the law. So he blessed them and was gathered to his fathers. And he died in the hundred forty and sixth year. And his sons buried him in the sepulchres of his fathers at Modain. And all Israel made great lamentation for him. If you've never been to Modain, it's a really neat place to go. And there in Modain, when they were doing road construction, they found ossuaries with names from these great days of the scriptures, which gave archaeological evidence that the Bible is true. Not that we need it. Also, when they were excavating Nineveh recently, have you seen the videos? They found inscriptions on the wall about how Sennacherib had conquered all the cities in the southern part of Judah, but were unable to conquer Jerusalem. So you can just put it right next to the Bible and more archaeological evidence that the words of the Bible are true. Not that I need proof. Chapter 3. And his son Judas, called Maccabeus, rose up in his stead. Again, that's Judah the Maccabee. And all his brethren helped him, and so did all they that held with his father. And they fought with cheerfulness the battle of Israel. So he gat his people great honor, and put on a breastplate as a giant, and girt his warlike harness about him. And he made battles, protecting the host with his sword. In his axe he was like a lion, and like a lion's whelp roaring for his prey. We just read in the scriptures in our studies last week that the smallest among Israel will be like David and like the lions when it comes to the time of the end fighting against the false Messiah. And here it is 2,700 years ago, the very same. Verse 5, And he pursued the wicked and sought them out and burned up those that vexed his people. Wherefore the wicked shrunk for fear of him, and all the workers of iniquity, that's lawlessness, were troubled, because salvation prospered in his hand. By, pro by salvation there they mean deliverance from the wicked one. He grieved also many kings, and he made Jacob glad with his axe, and his memorial is blessed forever. Moreover, he went through the cities of Judah, destroying the ungodly out of them, and turning away wrath from Israel. That's what Phineas had done, right? Mm-hmm. So that he was renowned unto the utmost part of the earth. And he received unto him such as were ready to perish. Then Apollonius gathered the Gentiles together and a great host out of Samaria to fight against Israel. Which thing when Judas perceived he went forth to meet him and so he smote him and slew him. Many also fell down slain but the rest fed, fled. Wherefore Judah took their spoils and Apollonius sword also and therewith he fought all his life long. 
Now when Sarah, the prince of the army of Syria, heard that Judah had, had gathered unto him a multitude and company of the faithful to go out with him to war, he said, I will get me a name and honor in the kingdom, for I will go fight with Judah and them that are with him who despise the king's commandment. Is this a wise move? No. no. So he made him ready to go up. And there went with him a mighty host of the ungodly to help him and to be avenged of the children of Israel. And when he came near to the going up of Beth Haran, Judah came forth to meet him with a small company. Uh-oh. The enemy's got a huge company. Judah's got a small company. How can he possibly win? Because the Lord's on his side. Yep. Who, when they saw the host coming to meet them, said unto Judah, How shall we be able, being so few, to fight against so great a multitude and so strong, seeing we're ready to faint with fasting all this day? Unto whom Judah answered, It is no hard matter for many to be shut up in the hands of a few. And with the God of heaven, it is all one. To deliver with a great multitude or a small company means God doesn't need a big army. He didn't even need the small army. It says, For the victory of battle standeth not in the multitude of a host, but strength cometh from heaven. They come against us in much pride and iniquity to destroy us and our wives and our children to spoil us. But we fight for our lives and our laws. Wherefore the Lord himself will overthrow them before our face. And as for you, be ye not afraid of them. Now as soon as he had left off speaking, he leapt suddenly upon them, and so Saron and his host was overthrown before him. And they pursued them from the going down of Beth Haran unto the plain, where were slain about 800 men of them, and the residue fled into the land of the Philistines. Then began the fear of Judah and his brethren, and an exceeding great dread to fall upon the nations round about them. Inasmuch as his fame came unto the king, and all nations talked of the battles of Judah. Now King Antiochus heard these things. He was full of indignation. Wherefore he sent and gathered together all the forces of his realm. Even a very strong army. Does that sound like Zechariah 14 and all the nations of the world? Antiochus gathers every army he has in all the world. He opened also his treasure and gave his soldiers pay for a year, commanding them to be ready whensoever he should need them. Nevertheless, he saw that the money of his treasures failed and that the tributes in the country were small because of the dissension and plague, which he had brought upon the land and taken away the laws which had been of old time. When the people stopped following the law, God stopped blessing the land, right? Yeah. He feared they should not be able to bear the charges any longer, nor to have such gifts to give so liberally as he did before. For he had abounded above the kings that were before him. Wherefore, being greatly perplexed in his mind, he determined to go into Persia, there to take the tributes of the countries and to gather much money. So he left Lysias, a nobleman, and one of the blood royal to oversee the affairs of the king from the river Euphrates unto the borders of Egypt and to bring up his son Antiochus until he came again. Rover delivered unto him half of his forces and the elephants and gave him charge of all things that he would have done. That's also concerning them that dwelt in Judah and Jerusalem, which means Lysias has the authority to just go destroy Israel. While oddly enough, Antiochus has to be someplace else. 
Normally in those days, the king led the assault. He says, I'm not going there. Mm -mm. And then he should place strangers in all their quarters and divide their land by lot. So the king took half of the forces that remained and departed from Antioch, his royal city, 140 and 7th year. And having passed the river Euphrates, he went through the high countries. Then Lysias chose Ptolemy, the son of Doramenes, Nicanor, and Gorgias, mighty men of the king's friends. With them he sent 40,000 footmen and 7,000 horsemen to go into the land of Judah and to destroy it, as the king commanded. So they went forth with all their power and came and pitched by Emmaus in the plain country. Emmaus, have you heard of Emmaus? Yeah, Messiah met the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the merchants of the country, bearing the fame of them, took silver and gold very much with servants and came into the camp to buy the children of Israel for slaves. The power also of Syria and the land of the Philistines joined themselves unto them. Now when June and his brethren saw that miseries were multiplied and that the forces did encamp themselves in their borders, for they knew how the king had given commandment to destroy the people and utterly abolished them. Then said one to another, Let us restore the decayed fortune of our people, and let us fight for our people and the sanctuary. Then was the congregation gathered together that they might be ready for battle, that they might pray and ask mercy and compassion. Ah, who do they turn to? To God. Now Jerusalem lay void as a wilderness. There was none of her children that went in or out. The sanctuary also was trodden down, and aliens kept the stronghold. The heathen had their habitation in that place, and joy was taken from Jacob, and the pipe with the harp ceased. Wherefore the Israelites assembled themselves together and came to Masfa over against Jerusalem, for in Masfa was the place where they prayed aforetime in Israel. Then they fasted that day, and put on sackcloth, and cast ashes upon their heads, and rent their clothes. Those are all signs of what? Mourning and repentance. And laid open the book of the law, wherein the heathen had sought to paint the likeness of their images. So the book of the law, the Gentiles had tried to draw images of their gods. But what does it mean had sought to? They tried, but God wouldn't permit it. They brought also the priest's garments and the first fruits and the tithes and the Nazarites they stirred up who would accomplish their days. Then cried they with a loud voice toward heaven, saying, What shall we do with these, and whither shall we carry them away? For thy sanctuary is trodden down and profaned, and thy priests are in heaviness and brought low. And lo, the heathen are assembled together against us to destroy us. What things they imagine against us thou knowest. How shall we be able to stand against them except thou, O God, be our help? Does that sound like humility? Like, God, we know that the victory is yours, it's not ours. Then sounded they with trumpets and cried with a loud voice. That's a teruah. And after this, Judah ordained captains over the people, captains over thousands and over hundreds and over fifties and over tens. Why didn't he ordain captains over the tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands? Because there weren't that many. That's right. But as for such as were building houses or had betrothed wives or were planting vineyards or were fearful, those he commanded they should return, every man to his own house. Why? 
according to the law. That's what the Torah says. So they're going to follow the Torah even if it means having less soldiers to fight. So the camp removed and pitched upon the south side of Emmaus. And Judah said, Arm yourselves and be valiant men, and see that ye be in readiness against the morning, that ye may fight with these nations that are assembled together against us to destroy us in our sanctuary. For it's better for us to die in battle than to hold the calamities of our people than to behold the calamities of our people in our sanctuary. Nevertheless, as the will of God is in heaven, so let him do. Meaning what? If we fail and die, we fail and die. It's all in God's hands. That's great faith. Chapter 4, this is the last chapter I'll read because we have the glorious defeat here. Then took Gorgias 5,000 footmen, 1,000 of the best horsemen, and removed out of the camp by night. To the end he might rush in upon the camp of the Jews and smite them suddenly. And the men of his fortress were guides. In other words, he's going to surround them and come at them from all sides. Now when Judah heard thereof, he himself removed and the valiant men with him, that he might smite the king's army which was at Timaeus. Well, as yet the forces were dispersed from the camp. In the mean season came Gorgias by night into the camp of Judah. When he had found no man there, he sought them in the mountains. For said he, these fellows flee from us. Oh, no they don't. But he thought they did. But as soon as it was day, Judah showed himself in the plain with 3,000 men who nevertheless had neither armor nor swords to their minds. And they saw the camp of the heathen, that it was strong and well harnessed, encompassed round about with horsemen, and these were expert of war. Then said Judah to the men who were with them, Fear not ye their multitude, neither be ye afraid of their assault. Remember how our fathers were delivered in the Red Sea when Pharaoh pursued them with an army. Now therefore let us cry unto heaven, if peradventure the Lord will have mercy upon us, and remember the covenant of our fathers, and destroy this host before our face this day. That so all the heathen may know that there is one who delivereth and saveth Israel. What does that mean? So that everyone will know we didn't do it, God did it. Does that remind you of the battle of Gog and Magog? It should. Wherefore they went out of the camp to battle, and they that were with Judas sounded their trumpets. They don't have swords, so they blow trumpets. And what happened? So they joined battle, and the heathen being discomfited, which means terrified, fled into the plain. They're running from men blowing trumpets. Maybe they don't like music. I don't know. Howbeit all the hindmost of them were slain with a sword, for they pursued them unto Gazera and unto the plains of Idumea, and Azotus, and Jomnia, so that they were slain of them upon a three thousand men. This done, Judas returned again with his host from pursuing them. He said to the people, Be not greedy of the spoil, inasmuch as there is a battle before us. And Gorgias and his host are here by us in the mountain. But stand ye now against our enemies and overcome them, and after this ye may boldly take the spoils. What are they going to do with the spoils, you think? Rebuild the temple of God? You betcha. As Judah was yet speaking these words, there appeared a part of them looking out of the mountain, who when they perceived that the Jews had put their host to flight and were burning the tents, 
for the smoke that was seen declared what was done. When therefore they perceived these things, they were sore afraid. And seeing also the host of Judah in the plain ready to fight, they fled every one into the land of strangers. They're running from people with trumpets. Then Judah returned to spoil the tents, for they got much gold and silver and blue silk and purple of the sea and great riches. After this, they went home and sung a song of thanksgiving and praised the Lord in heaven. Because it is good. Because his mercy endures forever. Say that in Hebrew. Ki leolam chasdo. The Psalms that we read at Passover are, or at Hanukkah are full of those words. Verse 25. Thus Israel had a great deliverance that day. And all the strangers that escaped came and told Lysias what had happened. Who, when he heard thereof, was confounded and discouraged. Because neither such things as would were done unto Israel, nor such things as the king commanded him were come to pass. Notice he's got to go home and tell the king he failed. The next year, therefore, following Lysias gathered together three score thousand choice men afoot and five thousand horsemen that he might subdue them. So they came into Edomi and pitched their tents at Bashura, and Judah met them with ten thousand men. How does ten thousand compare against Lysias' army? It's little. And when he saw that mighty army, he prayed and said, Blessed art thou, O Savior of Israel, who didst quell the violence of the mighty man by the hand of thy servant David, referring to Goliath, and gave us the host of strangers into the hands of Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his armor-bearer. Shut up this army in the hand of thy people Israel. Let them be confounded in their power and horsemen. Make them to be of no courage and cause the boldness of their strength to fall away. Let them quake at their destruction. Again, does that sound like Gog and Magog? It does. Cast them down with the sword of them that love thee, and let all those that know thy name praise thee with thanksgiving. So they joined battle and were slain of the host of Lysias, about 5,000 men. Even before them were they slain. Now when Lysias saw his army put to flight, and the manliness of Judah's soldiers, and how they were ready either to live or die valiantly, he went into Antiochia and gathered together a company of strangers. Having made his army greater than it was, he purposed to come again into Judea. He just doesn't learn, does he? Then said Judas and his brethren, Behold, our enemies are discomfited. Let us go up to cleanse and dedicate the sanctuary. Upon this, all the hosts assembled themselves together and went up into Mount Zion. Talking about the Temple Mount. When they saw the sanctuary desolate and the altar profaned and the gates burned up and shrubs growing in the courts as in a forest or in one of the mountains, yea, and the priest's chambers pulled down, they rent their clothes and made great lamentation and cast ashes upon their heads and fell down flat to the ground upon their faces, and blew an alarm with the trumpets, and cried toward heaven. Then Judah appointed certain men to fight against those that were in the fortress, until he had cleansed the sanctuary. So, the, so he chose priests of blameless conversation, such as had pleasure in the law, who cleansed the sanctuary and bare out the defiled stones into an unclean place. When he had consulted what to do with the altar of burnt offerings, which was profaned, 
they thought it best to pull it down, lest it should be a reproach to them, because the heathen had defiled it, wherefore they pulled it down. And laid up the stones in a mountain of the temple in a convenient place until there should come a prophet to show what should be done with them. Then they took whole stones according to the law and built a new altar according to the former. And made up the sanctuary and the things that were within the temple and hallowed the courts. They made also new holy vessels and into the temple they brought the candlestick, that's the menorah, and the altar of burnt offerings and of incense in the table. And upon the altar they burned incense, and the lamps were upon the candlestick they lighted, that they might give light to the temple. Furthermore, they set the loaves upon the table, that's the table of showbread, spread out the veils, and finished all the works which they had begun to make. And on the five and twentieth day of the ninth month, which is the month called Kislev, that's the first day we call Hanukkah, in the hundred forty and eighth year they rose up betimes in the morning. And offered sacrifice according to law upon the new altar of burnt offerings which they had made. Look at what time and what day the heathen had profaned it. Meaning the very same time on the very same day they had profaned the temple. God allowed it to be recleansed and repurposed and brought back to him. Even as it was dedicated with songs and scythers and harms and cymbals, and all the people fell upon their faces, worshiping and praising the God of heaven, who had given them good success. And they kept the dedication of the altar eight days. That's why Hanukkah is eight days long. And offered burnt offerings with gladness, and sacrificed the sacrifice of deliverance and praise. They decked also the forefront of the temple with crowns of gold and with shields, and the gates in the chambers they renewed and hanged doors upon them. Thus there was very great gladness among the people, for that the reproach of the heathen was put away. Moreover, Judah and his brethren, with the whole congregation of Israel, ordained that the days of the dedication of the altar, that is Hanukkah, should be kept in their season from year to year by the space of eight days, from the five and twentieth day of the month of Kislev, with mirth and gladness. At that time they also built up the Mount Zion with high walls and strong towers round about, lest the Gentiles should come and tread it down as they had done before. And they set there a garrison to keep and a fortified Beshura to preserve it, that the people might have a defense against Idumea. Now let's turn back to the scriptures. Grab your Bibles once more. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. As Edmund is right, God records in the book of Hebrews his pleasure with what the Maccabees did and the folks that followed them. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 35. Hebrews 11, verse 35. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. One woman that's specifically talking about is Hannah. Hannah was a woman with eight sons. And she was called before the Syrians with her eight sons and said, Renounce God and eat from the pig. And they said no. 
So they put to death each of her sons, one after the other. Each time saying, Now will you renounce the God of your fathers and eat of the pig? And each time she said no. Until finally she was put to death also. And God records here her faith that she was willing to die rather than turn her back on God. Verse 36 says, Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, meaning they were still looking forward to the rapture and the resurrection that was to come one day. Now, can anyone tell me why when somebody says, God doesn't want you to keep his commandments anymore, I say, I must respectfully disagree. Let's go to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 relates the rebuilding of the temple that's coming to Hanukkah. So let's go to Haggai chapter 2. In Hebrew, Haggai means my festivals. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. So if you hit Matthew, turn back 20 pages or so. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This looks back at the rebuilding of the temple when Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. But also it points to a future temple yet to be, shall we say, built by Messiah at his return. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, that's Kislev, that's the day before Hanukkah starts, the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. So Israel has been suffering, and God says from the day you begin the construction of the temple on the day before Hanukkah, I will bless you from this day forward. Again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. That's the day before Hanukkah begins. Saying, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. What causes God to say, now I'm going to intervene and I'm going to destroy the Gentile world powers? People's repentance, and they lay the foundation of the temple because they want to once more stand in God's presence. Yeah. Time's about to expire on us, so let's go to Psalm 30, which is the Hanukkah psalm, and it's a psalm that's sung at the dedication of the temple. Psalm 30. 
Psalm 30. It says at the beginning, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of the Lord. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You kept me alive that I should not go down into the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. And give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Verse 4 mentions the saints. How does Revelation 14, 12 describe the saints? Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. One last scripture before we quit, and that's in Acts chapter 6. People tell me all the time, Wayne, the New Testament was written in Greek. And I say, no, it wasn't. It was translated to Greek for the nations to read it. But it was not written by Greek speakers, except Luke was a Greek speaker. He was an exception. But he traveled with Paul because Paul wasn't that good at Greek. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there rose a complaint against the Hebrews. That should read the Hebrew-speaking Jews. By the Hellenists, those are the Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Why would the Hebrew-speaking Jews look down on the Greek-speaking Jews? Because they were the ones that apostatized during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Those that turned away from God and said, we'll take the Greek language, we'll take the Greek language, we'll take the Greek culture, we'll, we'll worship the Greek gods. And the Hebrew-speaking Jews have not forgotten it. And by the Hebrew-speaking Jews, they're referring to the apostles. And with that, our time has come to an end. Let me just tell you briefly how we celebrate Hanukkah at our house. First, we light the candles. One the first night, two the second night, etc. All the way through the eight nights. And we read a blessing from that handout that's adapted from Chosen People Ministries that I sent out to everybody. We sing Psalms 113 to 118 called the Hallel, which means the praise. We Each one of us reads one and then the next one reads the next one. And then Psalm 136 we read responsively. And half of every verse is Ki Leolam Chasdo for his mercy endures forever. We play dreidel 
Got a dreidel right here. It's got four Hebrew letters, Nun, Gimel, Hay, and Pei. This is one from Israel. It says, Neskadol Hayapo. A great miracle happened here. And then the ones for outside the land read, Nun, Gimel, Hay, Sheen. A great miracle happened there. And these were used by children through the ages when they couldn't openly talk about the Torah to tell the story of Hanukkah through a game, playing the dreidels. It's required, I'm sorry, you must eat sufganyot, which is jelly donuts. Everybody's got to have some jelly donut. It's not really commanded, but... And then we eat latkes, which are potato pancakes which my mother used to make when I was young. She had no idea it was a Jewish dish, I don't think. And then if you're musically inclined to sing Hanukkah songs. And with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer.